Take your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2. Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. It's right after Deuteronomy. We've been working through the book of James, and we're going to continue working through the book of James today um, in chapter 2. But we're going to start off with um, uh, an illustration that James uses. So we'll talk about that for a little bit from Joshua 2, and then we'll move back to James to talk about what it means to have a faith that is alive, uh, a faith that works. I want to start off by... um, reading to you this article that I read this week on one of my um, favorite blogs to read, The Salt Collective. It's called, uh, the the title of the article is, I Know I'm Going to Hell, uh, by Julius Speck. What have we as a church been teaching theologically that makes women in prostitution believe they can't talk to God? That makes them believe they can't ask for help in the midst of a rough situation? What's a theology that we're communicating that makes women believe they have to have their lives cleaned up in order to earn God's ear and grace and forgiveness before he would intervene in their lives and situations. Just last month, I was sitting across the table from a woman in her early 20s. She sat nervously, pushing her food around her, avoiding eye contact and bouncing her leg up and down. She asked me repeatedly, do you think I'm going to hell? I met a young woman out on the track the other night. She couldn't have been older than 17. She was terrified of her situation, hopeless and wanting help, but felt too far gone. When we offered prayer, she responded with nervous laughter and told us that she just didn't want to be a hypocrite. I was talking to a lovely woman who has become a very dear friend to me over the last few years the other day, and she began recounting a very dangerous situation she had managed to break free from, with many scrapes, bruises, and a couple broken ribs to tell the tale. A John had grown increasingly violent and started to strangle and beat her. And in that moment, she told me, I wanted to cry out to God to help me, to save my life. I wanted to pray, God, just don't let me die like this but I knew he would never hear me. After the life I've lived, there is no way God would still hear my prayers or let me into heaven. What have we as a church been teaching that makes each of them so convinced they are going to hell, that they are beyond redemption, that they don't even deserve the ear of God anymore, that he is so far removed from them, he no longer desires to hear their voice? Last time I checked, I was told each time I cheated or lied or had lust in my heart or was gluttonous, I was free to turn back to God again and again and again. So why do we make certain sins unredeemable and dirty? I think that's the difference. A life of prostitution and those trapped in it, whether it is their choice or not, is so taboo, something we can't even really address or talk about from a pulpit, so they are alienated. If their sin is so dirty that we can't even talk about it in church, No wonder they think it's too severe for God's ears. But Christ, by his death and resurrection, and even before that, by his life on earth as a human, has redeemed these women. They are made in his very image, the imago dei. The baptism of Jesus paints a picture of our identity in God. Christ's worth was not based on his merits, work, miracles, or anything he did during his ministry on earth. God declared him, my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased before he had a chance to even begin his ministry on earth. The fact that Jesus was baptized at all shows incredible solidarity with us as sinners. Baptism signifies repentance in John's baptism. And Jesus, the only human being who did not need to repent, identified with humanity through being baptized. He is not ashamed of us. He is proud when our identity is in him. He is pleased to call us sons and daughters. Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, God in Creation, says it well when he says, What is evil only emerges in the light of what is good. In the same way, sin can merely pervert something which God has created, but cannot destroy it. Sin is the perversion of a human being's relationship to God, not its loss. 
So the next time you talk to someone about the accessibility of God and their possibility of going to hell, think about the implications you are having on yourself in that moment. I realize that most who have this conversation or make this accusation are doing this out of a deep, deep love for God and desire to see someone living their life in a way that is evident of no sin. But there is a bigger picture at play. Addictions, systemic abuse, oppression, manipulation, violence. We would do well to show grace in the face of these things, to show love above anything else and to leave eternal damnation to God. For we would not want to prohibit any attempt these men and women make to reach God by intimidating them that he'd never listen to them in the first place. The church should be a place where they are loved. Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens, above, and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Then the men said, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land... You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be in our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away. And they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. God, thank you for your servant Rahab, who you called and made yourself known to, and who you now have 
set forth as an example of faith that works. So teach us, God, from our sister today, what it means to be, have a faith that is alive, a faith that is not useless, a faith that is not dead, but the kind of faith that you desire us to walk by. We bless you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, I went to a conservative Christian school growing up. And I remember, it was like in fifth or sixth grade. In a Christian school, you have Bible class, right? And so, like, one of the subjects was learning the Bible. So, in this Bible class, we were learning the book of, the books of, like, history, you know, the Old Testament history. And, uh, I'm pretty sure it was my sixth grade teacher that was teaching us about this. And he told us the story of Rahab like this. He's like, these two spies, they uh, were sent by Joshua into the city of Jericho. And on their way into the city, um, the bad guys found out that they were coming in to spy on Jericho. And so they were running through the city, just looking for a place to hide. And they ducked into a house. It happened to be a prostitute's house. But she was a nice prostitute. She was a prostitute who was willing to help them out. And so she hid them under some flax, up on the, up on the, uh, some stalks up under, uh, on the roof. And then when the bad guys came to the house, because they heard that might be where they are, then she said, you know, she lied to them and told them to go off a different way. I'm 37 years old, and it wasn't until I studied Rahab this week that I realized that guy was just trying to cover up something. Right? Look at the series of events. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. They chose the home of a prostitute to make their base of operations. Now, don't get me wrong, it makes sense. If you're a spy from a different nationality than another place. I mean, a place that you can be somewhat conspicuous, a place that strange men go in and out of a lot, would certainly be the red light district, right? I mean, it makes sense. This would be a good place that you could probably seek some refuge. I get it. What I think is funny is our instinct to try and make something that we would think of as scandalous, that I'm not sure that God, it doesn't say they slept with her. You know what I mean? It doesn't say that they were like paying her for favors while they were there. It just simply says that When they went to Jericho, they sought out the home of a prostitute and they made that their base of operations. The bad guys heard that they were in Jericho, right? They caught wind of it and then they went to the house searching for the men. And then they found where they thought that they might be. I mean, if, heck, if cop shows on TV tell you anything, you know, you just go from apartment to apartment, you know, questioning people and beating them down and whatnot and getting information out of them. You know, and so Rahab, she says, well, yeah, you found the right place. They were here, but now they've gone. You know, so if you hurry up and go now, then they'll, then you can probably overtake them. Right? Rahab, in the meantime, has hidden them up on her roof and her roof has covered with flax, which is drying in the sun so that it can be threshed and whatnot. And, and they're hiding under this thing. I found this children's Bible picture that has like all of this, all of these, uh, all these flax things. It's got these two, dis- two, two, two heads like sticking out of it, like, like this. It was, it was awesome. And uh, uh, 
you know, and, and she goes and gets them. You guys got to go, you know, let you down over the wall, run, hide and for three days. And, you know, and there has to be a question as to like motivation in the situation. Like, why, why are you doing this? Why are you helping us? Rahab has heard the stories of the God of these spies. She has heard about the power. She has heard about the way that he moves. She's heard about how he empowers his people. She's heard about the judgment that he levels against people who choose to be enemies of his people. She's heard about these things. And based on the hearing, based on the story of God that she hears, she chooses to make a statement. Verse 11 As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a confession, right? That's a confession of faith. He is your God, the Lord, this one that I've heard of. He is your God. He's the one. He's the one. We know that he is the one God, which is interesting. She doesn't say he's a God, that he is God. He is God above, he is God below. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful story of redemption. Rahab goes on to become a part of the nation of Israel. As part of the nation of Israel, she gets married. And fast forward 40 generations or so, and you know who's born? Jesus. Rahab is like great, 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 great grandmother to the Messiah, the prostitute. I read a quote by Frederick Buchner this week. It said that we read in Matthew 1 that Rahab was a prostitute and she was also in the lineage of Christ, which might explain why Jesus was drawn to loose women with generous hearts. Because right, if you look at the life of Christ, I mean, Jesus isn't afraid of anybody. Right, Jesus isn't afraid of scandal. Jesus isn't afraid of talking to the woman that comes out to draw water at the well at the middle of the day instead of the beginning of the day. This woman who had five husbands who couldn't keep herself sexually linked to one person. All right, Jesus isn't scared of that woman at all. But Jesus isn't scared of scandalous people, Mary Magdalene, whom he cast seven demons out of. And he's not worried about that situation in the least. A woman caught in adultery is brought before him in this scandalous situation. And who does Jesus go after? Her? Nope. He goes after the ones that want to throw the stones. Right, this is a beautiful component of our God. That he takes broken and desperate people. And he takes their brokenness and he transforms it into beauty. It is we who scandalize things, right? It is we who mark things. It is we who say prostitution, that's really bad, right? That's really dirty. When my own judgment of someone who lives in prostitution, not so bad, right? We're the ones that take all of these different sins and we sort of arrange them on a scale and we... 
open them up to all kinds of interpretation personally and judgmentalism as a church and, and say this, 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 real bad. This, 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 not so bad. This, 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 not bad at all, if, as long as you can keep it hidden. You know, and then we operate according to these constructs. When one of the most beautiful concepts that we can see in Scripture is that God takes the most broken, the most hurt, the most destroyed, and turns those situations into objects of beauty. This is the work of redemption. Rahab, a prostitute. And prostitution and prostitutes themselves would have been thought of pretty similar to the way that we think of them today. It's just lower. You know, it's just a, a different segment of society that bad people tap into from time to time. This article that I, I read just resonated with me and with an experience, um, I mean, that there's prostitutes in Lebanon. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly here. At our first Festival of Life, um, the Festival of Life, the thing that we do up, on, up at, uh, eight, well, we did it at the middle school this year, but we did it at Monument Park. This would have been, the first one that I was a part of would have been, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years ago, something like that. Um, we were standing around and there was stuff going on and, and whatnot, and we, were at a, we had a prayer station. We always have a prayer station every year. And uh, this prayer station, it was, it was open and people were coming up for prayer and whatnot. And there was just, there was a girl that was walking around. And, and she just kept sort of walking past the prayer station, but she kept coming a little bit closer to the prayer station every time, you know? And then she would just sort of like, she would never make eye contact or anything like that. She would just sort of saunter on by. So about the closest that she ever got was about 10 or 15 feet away. So finally, I was just like, hey! <laughs> like, hey, you, can we pray for you? You know? And she stopped, and she looked at me, and she said, you're a pastor at that church. I was like, what church? She goes, the church at the Y. I was like, well, yeah, we used to be at the Y. That's how people, a lot of people in Lebanon still know us. I said, now we're at that church in, in the theater. Um, she goes, yeah, that one. She goes, that one. She goes, um, I, said, do you, I said, yeah, do you, want, do you want us to pray for you? And she goes, um, is there somebody else I can pray with? Sure, no problem. Do you want to pray with a woman? She's like, I don't care. I just don't want to pray with you. <laughs> I, I, I always thought I was a relatively nice guy. Um, <laughs> But it wasn't that I was, a, I was a dude, it was that I was a pastor, right? It was this, th- this thing that I represent. I represent, as a pastor, I represent a church. As a church, I represent part of a larger church. And as part of the larger church, I represent a statement, a voice, a communication. So I was like, sure, somebody else can pray with you, no problem. I pulled another one of our ladies over. She prayed with her. I said, was everything okay in that situation, you know? And she said yes, though she didn't talk to me about it much beyond that. Then I saw this lady around town through a number of different situations and whatnot. She came to us for help uh, eventually, which was pretty cool, I thought. Um, and turns out that she was caught in prostitution, you know, and we had been in this cycle for a very, very long time. And a lot of the prostitutes in our city that are here, they do it for drugs. They don't do it for money. It, it's, it's for drugs often. How, how do we think about that? I mean, how, do, how, do, how does your own mind right now engage that? How, how do you think about that? You know, there's a, a strip club down across from Walmart or across from like the uh, Harley Davidson thing next to Dairy Queen, just down, just down from it. Um, I mean, that situation is, 
there. there there's actual women who work there. There's, there's men who go in there, women who go in there. Like, what goes through your heart and mind when this gets voiced? Like, what do you do when you drive past that? Do you engage it? Do you ignore it? What do you think about it? What do you think about somebody caught in that line of work? Where does your heart go? Where does your mind go? How would God have us think about this? I, I think that Rahab stands as one of the most countercultural statements from God. That her, as a person, stand, I mean, your lineage, when you were, if you're going to be a king, right, your lineage matters. It had better check out. And you want to avoid scandal at all costs, right? Anybody watch Downton Abbey? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, how concerning is the family name, right? How, how big a deal is it for the aristocracy to keep things neat and clean? You know, Lady Edith, she's really messing around at the edges right now. You know, like, whoa, boy, scandalous. You know, folks, don't watch this show. <laughs> it will suck you in and you will feel like a... You're watching it. Well, you are. You're watching a soap opera. Anyway, don't get me started on Downton Abbey. I've seen them all. I've seen them all. Okay, so um, where was I? Your lineage. Your lineage really matters. You know, it's very important. It needs to check out and hopefully avoid scandal. And God chooses scandal. He did not have to pick Rahab. He did. Right? He chose a prostitute to be part of the lineage of the Messiah Rahab is a statement of redemption. She is a statement of the heart of God toward the most broken. And what's important to remember, everybody look at me, we are all the most broken. There is no difference between me and that girl that didn't want me to pray with her. Right? My level of depravity, my sin nature, my offense toward God, my need for Christ, like my, my deep, deep requirement for redemption for the whole of me is so, so broad and vast and strong. Isn't hers? Sure. We're all in this human thing together. So why do we separate? Why do we judge? Why do we compartmentalize? Why do we pull things apart? Why are you afraid of the people that you're afraid of? It's probably got a lot to do with where you came from. It's probably got a lot to do with your wounds. God chooses Rahab. She is a statement of redemption. And as a statement of redemption, she responds to who God is. And God calls her, God calls that response God calls what she is and who she does a faith that works. Take your text and turn back to James chapter 2. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not, that the, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and the faith and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James knows his Torah. James knows his Old Testament. Right? And there are a lot of stories of people who have faith that, are, that is active. He picks these two for a reason. He picks these two on purpose. Now, Abraham, we even call in, in Christian history the father of faith. Right? But he picks, he picks two pagans to show us this work. Right? These are not people who are Judaic in their nature. These are not people who have been raised as part of the people of God. Abraham's an Ur of the Chaldees, probably some kind of a moon worshiper. Just doesn't have any scriptures. He's got no context. We talked about this last week. There's just suddenly a voice. Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. Go. Where should I go? I'll show you. Just go. And Abraham goes. And he walks and he follows and he fathers a son even when he shouldn't be able to father a son. And then God tells him to sacrifice that son. God puts the condition, God puts his promise to Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation, which he has to have a son in order to do, right? Lineage, it matters. And then tells him to sacrifice the son. Abraham's willingness to follow God Abraham's willingness, Abraham's openness to step toward that which would most destroy him in faith, believing that God can do more than what Abraham can imagine. That's the source of what Abraham's obedience is based in. Abraham has in his mind a picture of who God is. And when he says to his servants, the boy and I will return to you, he has an imagination. He has a dream. He has a picture of a God who can do something beyond what he knows is capable. The boy and I will return to you. Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. I don't see the sacrifice. Abraham says God will provide. And God does provide. And Abraham has in his mind, Abraham has in his heart a bigger picture of God. A God who can take a situation that would be the most devastating thing that you could ever imagine, like slaying your own child. I mean, it's inhumane, it's immoral. And bring that back to some situation of glory and wholeness and goodness. He's got a capacity within himself to think outside of himself, to believe that God is bigger than what he can engage and that God will work on that bigger level with those bigger reasons for his bigger glory and still keep in line with his own promises to what he's already said to Abraham. And Abraham has this direct 
connection to God to receive that. That's amazing. But man, you think about Rahab? Now that's something because she also has no Torah, right? She has no history of Israel. The, all they know of Israel is that they are a really big nomadic tribe who worships not many gods like Rahab would have known, but worships one god. And this one god seems to kick butt everywhere he goes. And so everybody they run into and every situation they run into, these people are winning. And they're getting more flocks, they're getting more cattle, they're getting more wealthy, they're getting more people. And now they are at our doorstep. And the people of Jericho, Rahab, Rahab rats them out. We're terrified of you. Right? We're terrified of you. Our hearts melt within us, she says, but not because of your military might. What does she confess? She confesses, oh, we know who your God is. I know who your God is. I believe that your God is, a, is the reason why you have conquered thus far and why you will conquer when you come into Jericho. So please remember me. Remember this situation I am going to help you as a result. Save me. Right? There is this point of recognition of who God is that delivers to Rahab an action, a point of movement where what she's heard about God and who she knows God to be becomes something in her life. And she chooses to hide the spies. I mean, that's what James specifically points out. It it is not the scarlet cord, as great a picture as that is. You know, a blood-soaked cord hanging out a window, beautiful stuff, all that, Jesus' blood, so on and so forth. But that's not what James points to. James doesn't point to the scarlet cord. James points to the act of hiding the slaves, or hiding the spies, which is interesting. Because she doesn't know how they'll react. She has no idea if this is actually going to work or not. But what else is she going to do? She has an imagination big enough to think that these people might have compassion on me, that their God might have compassion on me. She's heard about what God has done to the Amorites. She heard about that. She heard what he did to uh, um, Og and that other guy, uh, you know, the, the destruction that he, that he wrought on his kingdoms. It was, it was awful. It was bad. And there is something within her having only seen this God come this far with indestructive military might that says, will your God spare me? Will you spare me? Her faith births an action in her life of hiding the spies that justifies who she says that she is. Now we're going to talk more about justification next week. It's important to understand both concepts of justification in the New Testament. What's interesting is just this simple point, right? Which is that Rahab is a prostitute. Rahab is a person who is sin-soaked, right? Who has chosen what culture has always said is a horrible, horrific thing. And God shows himself to her and she responds in faith. We are all sitting here with sin that speaks to us. Except, except if we're stuck in hypocrisy and judgmentalism. Because if we're doing that, then the sin isn't speaking to us, we're speaking to us. We're telling ourselves we're okay. We're telling ourselves that we're good. 
Like, I'm not the broken. I have the ability to see who is the broken, right? And so, like, the judgmentalistic, hypocritical thing that we can do when it comes to sinners, that is the one thing that will keep you from understanding that your sin is speaking to you because your sin is speaking to you, but your sin is telling you that you're fine and then you're believing it. But it's your actual judgmental hypocrisy that's keeping you trapped in the voice of hearing yourself that tells yourself that you're fine when in reality you're self-condemning. Does that make sense? That felt like a very long mathematical proof. <laughs> right? So, so that's the one case. So if you're not aware, right? If you're not aware, be looking for that. All the, but on some level, we all have sin that speaks to us. We all have brokenness that speaks to us. We all can look at something in our lives and go, man, what is wrong with me? Is there grace for that? Am I okay? The answer is no. You're not. And I'm not either. We, we are def- if there's one thing in Scripture, it's that we, apart from Christ, we are not okay. We, we, have, we have nothing. And it's that in Christ... We now have this battle between old man and new man that the apostle Paul, like great apostle, says the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. What is with me? Who's going to help me? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from myself? Who will save me from the condemnation that I feel? I mean, Paul himself is understanding this tension at the end of his life. He's declaring himself the chief of sinners. Now, there's this deep awareness of Peter walking with Jesus for three years, doing incredible things. And then at the point of highest tension, denying Christ three times. Man, if that's not a sin that speaks, whew. And do we not all find ourselves in these places where these voices are so loud? And our sin is so loud. The question is most definitely like, can God still use me? Heck, does God want to still use me? What the enemy wants to do is shut down, shut down your ability to believe in who God is as a great redeemer. He wants to kill your imagination. He wants to kill the stories that you know here and the people around you that you live with and love that say that no one, nothing is beyond the love of God. Look at Rahab. Look at Rahab and the redemption that she experienced. Rahab doesn't have a voice from God like Abraham did. Rahab just simply has the stories. Have you heard about this God of this tribal people who is coming near us? All she's got is words of hearing from and about him, not even directly from him, and she believes She hears his story and she turns to him in faith and in an act of faith, she hides the spies. And James calls that faith that works. We have in our notions this, I'm sorry, we have in our heads these notions that like I've got to become something. I've got to clean myself up. I've got to wash myself off. Like this girl wrote in this article, you know, I mean, just all these testimonies that she's hearing of, I can't do that. God doesn't want that for me. I'm condemned to hell. There is no grace for me. I think we all find ourselves in these repetitive cycles of self-condemnation that kill our faith, that kill our imagination, 
that kill our reality, to be able with, with the eyes of our mind and the eyes of our heart to see the grace and love and goodness of a God who wants to redeem, whose heart is to redeem, who sent his son to redeem. And what it takes to receive that is a grasp of faith, is a movement toward God, right? Is a, is, is a step that says, I believe, I receive even if I never actually, like, tangibly receive what the thing is that I'm believing for, I believe. Which is really what faith is about. All right, uh, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews 11. See Rahab again. Just back a couple of pages. So one of the key phrases in Hebrew 11 is by faith, right? Is, uh, is by faith. It's important for you to know that this faith is an active faith, right? It's not a, not a dead faith, right? So, I mean, a really good translation for this by faith is by an active faith. Uh, that's how the message does it. Um, how Gene Peterson translates it, by an active faith. So think about that, right? That's how I'm going to name it. Verse 4, by an active faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Verse 8, by an act of faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 9, by an act of faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised to them, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 17, by an act of faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 23, by an act of faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. Uh, Jump back up to uh, verse 20. By an act of faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By an act of faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed his sons. Verse 22, by an act of faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Which, you know, when I read Joseph's act of faith, like, seriously, that's all he had to do? Like, ah, at some point, the people are going to wander through the wilderness and you want to, should bury me like this. I just think it's really interesting. Um, but I, I'm not making fun of him. Like, I just think that's weird. Does anyone else think that's weird? All right. Like, I can understand this thing. And I'm going to kill my son. No, there's another. That's a great act of faith. But Joseph acts in a small act of faith. Small act of faith. Believing in something that he hadn't seen yet. And he sort of talks about the exodus from Israel or from Egypt and his mention of his burial. Uh, By an act of faith, Moses. Verse 24, by an act of faith, Moses. Uh, Verse 27, by an act of faith, he left Egypt. Verse 28, by an act of faith, he kept the Passover. Verse 29, by an act of faith, people crossed the Red Sea. Uh, And as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they were attempted to do the same, were drowned. By an act of faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Verse 31, by an act of faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Because why? Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Which is exactly how a prostitute is supposed to act. Right? What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Solomon, who through an act of faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, so on and so forth. That's all the prophets. Verse 39. And all these, though commended, through their faith did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, 
that apart for us, from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you catch that? Did you catch it? All of these acts of faith, all of these great people of faith did not receive what was promised. Their faith was not actualized like we think of it. Right? There wasn't this thing that came to them that they were like, oh God, you proved yourself to me. Thank you. Right? They all, through an act of faith, grasped on to something that they could see, the writer of Hebrews says, with their hearts, that they could see off in a distance, that they greeted as, as a friend. Like, oh man, it'd be great if we could hang out sometime, redemption. It'd be great if we could hang out sometime, you know, uh, restored relationships. It'd be great if we could hang out sometime, people set free from Egypt. You know, all these things that they think that they wanted, that they saw out there somewhere, they died having not fully received. And God commends them not for performing well. God commends them for believing. God commends them for having a belief that is active, a belief that moves them. Not a bunch of church people sitting around talking about what we believe in with our minds, but faith, heart faith, real faith, faith that moves me towards something that I could never receive on my own, like a prostitute being redeemed, right? Like healing for disease, like restored relationships with broken people that maybe I broke myself on purpose because I just couldn't handle it anymore, right? It's, it's, it's the ability to, with your mind, with your imagination, to open yourself to the goodness and richness of God and say, I am latching onto that. I am believing in that and to begin to move toward what God calls you to. This whole not having received things situation, like uh, I'm going to do an act of faith, and uh, like th- this is an important thing. Here's what I want to say is that this can lead a lot of us to being spiritually schizophrenic, right? Where we, by an act of faith, latch onto this and become this person over here. And by an act of faith, latch onto this and become this person over here. By an act of faith, we think we hear this and we latch onto this and move over here, Right? And then we live like this, and we live like this, and we're bouncing back and forth, and we're becoming this person in this situation, we're becoming this person in this situation, we're becoming this person in this situation. Right? It leaves us feeling very, very fragmented. What James is pushing back against is a fragmented life. James is pushing back against fragmented faith. What he is calling us to is to a place of rest and wholeness with God, that says that I am called to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I am called to love my neighbor as I love myself. And I am called to a faith that enables me to do that. And that faith isn't just going to be faith that I sit in and go, yeah, I believe that. But it's going to be a faith that actually marches something forward in my life. It's going to be a faith that believes that what I cannot do, what I have lost, what was taken from me, the sin that speaks to me, the unrealized dreams and hopes, the failures, the insufficiencies, the inadequacies, that in the face of all of those things, I'm going to let God open my imagination, open my heart to who he is in those places. And I'm not going to run around like a chicken with my head cut off. I'm going to stay focused on Christ, listening to him, following him, seeking him, in the midst of all of the other things that want to tell me that he's not real or that my faith in him isn't real. 
And I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to look at God and God say, when, God, I'll love you more. I'll follow you better when you provide. When you give me what it is that I'm believing for. The thing about the act of faith is that these people have died having not received the promise. All of them were looking forward to Jesus and did not receive. But you know who you get to look to now? What's the next verse? 12.1. Right? It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. All the Old Testament saints are walking forward, having died, re- having received, having not received that which was promised. Right? All of them working toward the same end, which is the grand, glorious coming of the Messiah. Seeing it out there. Seeing this thing, this, this friend as in a distance. And then Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking unto Jesus, the author and what? And completer, perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I look to Christ. We are not left with this empty, vacuous shadow. You have received your inheritance. He is there. And where your faith fails, his faith is perfect, right? He perfects you. He completes your faith. So in the midst of these, th- this, this working faith that James is calling us to, understand this, that your faith has been authored. It has been completed. That what James is calling you to by loving your neighbor as you love yourself and for that to become real in your life, for there to be acts of faith like Abraham or like Rahab where there is a connection to Christ that speaks a true word of faith that you can build on and move toward and follow that Jesus has gone before you and that he is the perfecter. He is the one who takes the prostitute who feels so dirty and broken and unlovable and completely cleanses and redeems. Right? He's the one who takes the thief. He's the one who takes the thief and and, and makes him an honest man, right? Who redeems, who turns this. And we become cleansed. We become clean, having been dirty. We become honest, having been a crook. He's the one who took this, right? A legalistic, religious-minded kid and broke him. And now I stand in faith saying, God, what's going to happen? Because right? God, what, he uses my kids for this. Right? Their experience is my work of faith as much as their experience is their work of faith. And now I'm holding on to something. What am I holding on to? Uh, my kids have cystic fibrosis, by the way, if you don't know. Uh, my, I am holding on to not healing. I am holding on to Jesus. Because I don't have a clue what healing looks like for my kids. I don't have any idea what redemption that situation looks like. I, 
I would wager that you don't have any idea what redemption looks like in your situation either. So what an active faith is, is not fixing or problem solving, especially in situations that you don't have any clue how to fix or solve. An active faith is a clinging to Christ and following him in the midst of the situations and areas that you did not want and did not ask for. Or coming to him in the midst of your brokenness and ugliness and dirtiness and all of the terrible things that you feel about yourself or that the enemy is telling you, that culture is telling you, or, or, or that the church is telling you, whatever it might be. And understanding that Jesus is what you need. That he is all that you need. That your hopes are realized that your faith is completed, it is Christ. So when God calls us to live a faith that is active, he is not calling us to something that we cannot be. What he's calling us to is to see with our heart, to open the eyes and imagination of our mind, to receive who he is. Because as long as we get linked to reality, we will always be fitting him into our boxes. The way God used CF in my life was my picture of God at that time in my life was this big. God fit into a nice box just like this. And my pain was this big. And this couldn't handle this. And so I initially thought, well, so much for this. But then I thought to myself, well, then what am I going to do? I still didn't know what to do with this. But then, just through a gentle wooing of the Holy Spirit, God says, hey, I'm not this. And I'm not this. I'm so much bigger than you have ever imagined. Let me show you. I said, God, I mean, I don't know about that. Like, I think you sort of did me wrong over here. I mean, you can attack me, but don't attack my kids. God says, I didn't attack anybody. I've got nothing but love for you and your children. I've got nothing but goodness for you and your kids. Say, but God, this road doesn't look like a road to goodness. Will you imagine with me that it could be? That's asking a lot, God. Yes, it is. Will you follow? And just like Peter, what other option do I have? I know that you alone have life. So I still don't have a clue what's going to happen. I still don't have a clue what's around the next bend. I don't know where we're going. I know where I'd like to end up. But will I trust and follow God for A to B to C to D, to E, to just walking with him, living an active faith that says, God, you are worthy. You have called me. You have blessed me. You are good. You have perfected faith. It is you that I look to, not to myself, not to my concepts of healing, 
Not to my own power, my own strength, my own ability to be something. Not to my own ability to cleanse myself or to make myself feel good or to separate myself from people I don't like or any of those things. But living a faith that is active because it is a faith that is based on Christ who has been, who has completed the whole action in and of himself. He is redemption. He is life. He is healing. He is goodness. He is love. And an active faith like Rahab has steps toward him and says, you be God. Let's pray. God, thank you for our sister Rahab who teaches us. Thank you for our brother Abraham who teaches us what it means in extreme and desperate situations to step toward you and to believe, to see with the eyes of our heart the imaginations of our mind, what you call us to in our openness toward you to be about. God, make each one of us people that have active faith, faith that hears your voice and that follows you. Keep us, God, from our judgmental ways, from our hypocrisies, from our our religiosity, from all the things that we want to base our things in, our ability to perform God, just break down all those deceptions. May we see you for who you truly are. And may we see ourselves through your eyes as sons and daughters of the Most High God who follow you and live by faith in you. And our faith is an active faith and a solid faith because it is a faith that is birthed by you and for you and in you and by you all things consistent or hold together and have their beings. We rest in you. Make our faith a faith that works. In Jesus' name, amen. So may you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you be filled with faith. And may your faith be active. May you live in the confidence that is Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of your faith, who endured the cross for you that you might know life and life abundant. Walk in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.